In my basement at home, I have a box full of sentimental and treasured items that I've kept from throughout the years. As you read in the bio that the PNC put together, uh, I was raised in the Chicagoland area of Illinois, and so for most of my life, I was a long-suffering Chicago Cubs fan. And I say for most of my life because in 2016, we finally won that elusive World Series. I would be lying if I didn't say it was one of the best days of my life. And so in that box of treasured items, I have kept newspaper clippings and memorabilia from that World Series victory, thinking that it took them 108 years to win once, maybe it'll take them another 108 years. At least I'll have something to show my son and probably my grandchildren that it actually happened. I have kept treasured notes and cards and photographs and inside jokes from throughout my relationship with my wife, Heather. There's a book of theology that I wrote as a freshman in college. It was my semester project for my Christian theology class, and I've kept that in that box of treasured items. And what's funny to me is that I'm not sure how much of what I wrote as a 19-year-old I believe anymore, but I've kept that book as a reminder that the journey of being a Christ follower is one of constant reorientation, constant reevaluation of the things that we believe. And so I've kept that as a, a signpost from along the way in the journey. I also have in that box a memoir that my grandfather wrote. Towards the end of his life, he wrote down the story of who he was, and one of the last Christmases he was alive, he gave it to his kids and his grandkids. And so I've kept that memoir and that book of treasured items as one of the last tangible things I have to remember him by. But then in that box, there is one of the smallest items, a cassette tape. You remember cassette tapes, don't you? And on it is the date, August 10th, 2003. I was 15 years old. I was a rising high school sophomore. This is the recording of the first sermon I ever preached. We started them young in my church. <laughs> and I've kept that buried deep in that box of memory so that way no one would ever find it. But recently, when I was digging through that box of memories, I found that cassette tape, and I did the self-conscious exercise of listening to my 15-year-old self preach. First, I had to find a cassette player, because I certainly don't have one at home, but luckily enough, I was able to find one and borrow one, and, and so I stuck the tape into the tape player, and it started spinning, and my voice came over the speakers, and I sounded like, well, like I was 15. I had spent weeks on that sermon, and as I listened to my 15-year-old self, I was transported back to that moment in time, standing before the church of my childhood, my parents, my siblings, my friends, the elders of the church, my fellow youth group goers, people who knew me, people who helped raise me in faith. And I remember it was Youth Sunday, where the youth led worship, and we were all wearing these hideous tie-dye t-shirts we had made for that year's mission trip. I could hear the, the nerves in my voice, my knees were knocking, and my hands were shaking. My delivery was unvarnished, my exegesis was somewhere in the shallow end, and the length, just over seven minutes. It was unpolished and it was raw, but it was my first sermon. It's one that I will always treasure and one that I will always keep buried deep in that box of memories, so that way 
no one will ever find it. There is no recording of Jesus' first sermon. There's no digital soundtrack, no cassette tape, no CD. There was no live streaming of that service in those days. But Luke does write it down for us. His arrival, no doubt, must have been the talk of the town in a place like Nazareth where everyone knew each other. They knew Jesus had been gone for quite some time. They weren't sure where he had, where he had gone. They hadn't seen him working with Joseph in his shop, and when Mary went to the market, they would ask her, where is Jesus? And truth be told, she didn't know where he was. But perhaps by that point, she had learned to trust that wherever he went, he was about his father's business. But now, Jesus is back home, back among family and friends, back among the community that raised him up, who along with Mary and Joseph raised him in their favor and in God's. And their excitement over his arrival must have only grown when they found out that he had volunteered to preach during Sabbath worship that Saturday. That was the, the faith community that raised Jesus. Parents, grandparents, cousins, aunts, uncles, matriarchs, and patriarchs, sponsors from his bar mitzvah, people who had known him since he was a child. Jesus was home. And in that synagogue, week after week, he heard the, the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms read aloud every Saturday. He and everyone he knew gathered before ancient and sacred words. The word of God, words of unending and deeply rooted covenantal faithfulness given to his forebearers in faith. Visions of a hopeful future, promises of liberation, calls for justice, and the possibility of a peaceful world. And now Jesus, once again worshiping in his home synagogue, draws from that deep well of faith to proclaim that God was at work in his life to fulfill the promises that they had spent their lives hearing. This wasn't a random selection of scripture. These were carefully chosen words by Jesus. Words he chose to speak about the sort of ministry he was beginning. Words that describe the reign of God found in his own life that was now bursting the boundaries of our world. This was the thesis statement of who he was and what he sought to accomplish. And so after the opening prayers, Jesus stands up and leaves his pew and makes his way to the front. And he asks the assistant for the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And so the attendant pulls the scroll out of the ark, the place where the scrolls were kept, and hands it to Jesus. Jesus places it on the reading table, and he unrolls the scroll to the place that we have come to know as chapters 58 and 61, although they didn't have chapter and verse in those days. As Princeton Seminary professor Cleopas LaRue says, the word stands up to read the word. He takes a deep breath, and he begins to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Words the hometown crowd no doubt had heard countless times before. 
Jesus slowly rolls up the scroll and hands it back to the assistant, and he takes the preaching posture of those days by sitting down. The eyes of everyone in that synagogue are fixed on Jesus. And then Jesus gives his first sermon. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it. That's it. That's his first sermon. I thought it was sort of comical that mine was only seven minutes. But Jesus' first sermon is only 11 words. Most tweets are longer than that. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it, he says. Today, God's Spirit is upon Jesus. Today, he proclaims recovery of sight to the blind. Today, he brings good news for the poor. Today, there is release and freedom for those who are captive and oppressed. Today, he proclaims the beginning of the Jubilee, the great leveling out of all human relationships. And as the hometown crowd hears that, that these words are fulfilled as they heard them, I wonder if they looked out the window of the synagogue and saw Roman soldiers walking through the streets of Nazareth. A reminder that they were not free, but that they were living under occupation. Or perhaps as they were rushing into synagogue to Sabbath worship that Saturday, they had passed by someone who was begging along the roadside looking for some assistance. Or maybe they themselves knew the anxiety and the fear of not sure how they're going to put food on the table or pay the bills. Maybe for those of us who live in relative comfort and security, we hear that word today and we are challenged by it. I mean, if today, right here, right now, in this moment, God's reign is being realized, then it might mean we have the hard work of transformation in front of us. If today God's liberating word is spoken and good news is announced to the poor, then we might have to assess our relationships and consider whether or not we have any proximity to those who are addressed by this divine word. If today God's jubilee is announced and the oppressed are going free, then we're going to have to consider how we engage socially, communally, and theologically. Maybe it feels a little too idealistic to us. How can Jesus say that these words are fulfilled when we are drawing to the close of a year that has been unlike any year many of us have ever experienced? A pandemic that has ravaged and raged across the world, a quarter of a million people dead in our country alone, poverty, rates of poverty increasing. I was watching the news this week and people are waiting in lines for hours to get food. Is there good news for the poor? Or how can Jesus say that those words are fulfilled, that there is freedom for those who are oppressed and captive? And we have heard in a very real and very acute way this year that the oppressed are telling us that we still probably have a lot of work to do to get to that place where they are realizing their own freedom. It feels sort of far off, doesn't it, this word today, this fulfillment of these words? And so as I listen to this first sermon of Jesus, it feels so unfinished. It feels so incomplete. One of the best preachers I've ever heard was Craig Barnes, who is the president of Princeton Theological Seminary. And I had the 
great privilege of listening to him about once a week when he would preach in chapel when I was a student there. And Craig Barnes did this really interesting thing when he would preach, at least at Princeton. He would almost always leave his sermons unfinished and incomplete. He would speak for about 10 minutes, building up the anticipation, and just when you were ready for him to keep going, just when he brought you to the edge of the conclusion, he would say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he would leave the pulpit. He left us hanging. He'd leave the sermon in our hands. Leave it to us to finish. Leave it to us to believe. Leave it to us to conclude. He would point us in the direction of the conclusion but he would never take us there from the pulpit. And it strikes me that perhaps Jesus is doing the same thing here. That this sermon is unfinished on purpose. It's unfinished because in its incompletion, it's actually a very compelling invitation to us to join him in finishing that sermon. That he leaves space for us to join him in fulfilling those words as we hear them to make that message true today, right here, right now, in this neighborhood of God's kingdom. That Jesus points us in the direction of the conclusion, but he will not take us there from the pulpit. Because the conclusion to that sermon can be found in places like when Jesus sits around the table with tax collectors and other outcasts from society. And in those moments, those words were fulfilled. The conclusion to that sermon was not written in the ink of a pastor's notes, but as Jesus found his life in connection with those who are oppressed, marginalized, and maligned, those who bear the moniker, the least of these are brothers and sisters. And in those moments, it could be said, those words are fulfilled. For those who felt so unloved, who felt like they had no place to belong in this world when they met Jesus, his radical inclusion, his raw and unfiltered grace that said, I love you just as you are, no matter who you are or where you come from or who you love. In those moments, that first sermon found its conclusion. And the really amazing thing to me is that Jesus refuses to do it alone. That all along the way, he invites others to join him in fulfilling those words of his first sermon. He invites others to help him in writing that conclusion. Because whenever we join him in proclaiming good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, freedom for those who are oppressed, then we give that sermon its conclusion. Jesus will not finish it without us. He wants us to participate in creating the conclusion. I heard a story once from Amy Butler, who is the former pastor of Riverside Church in New York City. And she tells a story about a composer who liked to make music on the piano. And he would work late into the night on his compositions. And because he was compelled to work until he, because of that, he was compelled to work until he could find some logical stopping place. The end of a movement or the final measure of a piece. And because he tried so hard to bring closure to his work, he would often spend the whole night working and then would sleep well into the next day. The habit drove his wife crazy. She preferred that he work on a schedule closer to that of the rest of the world. It was hard for her to run the house, to manage the children, to cook and clean when she had to work around her husband sleeping till the middle of the afternoon most days. The problem was 
that this composer seemed hardwired to maintain this sleeping pattern. That he simply could not calm down for the night until he reached a logical stopping place in his work. Nothing this wife tried to do could get him out of bed at a normal hour. Alarm clocks didn't work, letting the kids run wild and loud across the house didn't work. Scheduling repairs during the time he was sleeping, the washing machine running, the vacuum, vacuum running, none of it seemed to be able to get him out of bed at a decent hour to begin life with the rest of the world. One day his wife was lugging a full laundry basket through the living room and she glanced toward the piano, stacked with the tools of her husband's work. Pencils strewn everywhere, scores sitting in piles. He was upstairs sleeping, of course. And then the wife noticed off to the side a piece of music and suddenly she had a thought. She sat down at the keyboard and began to play. She played and she played and she played until she reached the last note, which she didn't play, and then went back to her laundry. Sure enough, a few minutes later, her husband comes clomping down the stairs, rushing to the piano and triumphantly playing that one final note. He simply couldn't sleep until it was finished. And so every morning from that day forward, the composer's wife, before she began her morning chores, would pull up the bench to the piano, and she would play for a while, enough to perk up her husband's sleeping ears, and then she would get up before playing that last note. Problem solved. This first sermon of Jesus is unfinished, but its incompletion perks up our ears, it stirs us awake, and invites us to join him in concluding that first sermon. He has played us up all the way to the final notes, and now it hangs there, waiting for a response from you and I. Jesus is inviting us, you and I, today, right here, right now, in this neighborhood of God's kingdom, to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberation for those who are oppressed, and to announce that this is indeed the year of God's favor. Jesus has left it in our hands. It's ours to believe, ours to live, it's ours to make true, and it's ours to finish. Thanks be to God. Amen.